This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Man, we are so lucky. The great conversations we have on the show that we're all privy to. Uh, it's really a lot of fun and certainly, certainly a blessing. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, hosts of the program. This is Kelly and Ramya. We're here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. You can find us first time on AMI-audio at 4 p.m. Eastern, repeated at 10 p.m. Eastern on both networks. Thank you for being with us. And let's get into one of our weekly staples on the program. We invite Danielle McLaughlin. We were speaking of Know Your Rights a little bit in the last segment. Well, we've got a little more detail and conversation about it for you and an honored guest joining Danielle today. So let's bring Danielle on for Know Your Rights. Did you know that everyone has rights? No matter who we are, we all qualify. But what happens when freedoms collide? The answers are rarely simple, but always interesting. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, to talk about civil liberties and human rights on Know Your Rights. Welcome back to the program, Danielle. And today you have a wonderful guest joining in. I have. I'm delighted to tell you that we have a very special guest joining us today. Senator Kim Pate is an independent member of the Senate of Canada. And she is a longtime human rights advocate who has made a very significant contribution to the rights of women, people with disabilities, and people who are incarcerated in this country. Welcome to Kelly and Ramya, Senator Pate. It's my profound pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I come to you today from the shores of the Kichisipi, the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg Nation, otherwise known to many folks as Ottawa. Lovely. Thank you for telling us that. Now, over your career, you have shone light on the serious treatment, or I should say the serious problem of mistreatment of people in prisons. Has it been difficult to make the greater public care about convicted criminals? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly over my uh, more than 40 years, it's about 45 years now of going into prisons for young people, men and women. Uh, I started going before I went to law school and, of course, after law school, I started working more directly in those areas. And what I've seen is two things. One, um, the the tendency to just see anybody who has been convicted of a criminal offence as bad and therefore not worthy of any kind of support or certainly legal protection uh, was historic historically the situation, um, but increasingly with the recognition, I think the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, and the growing awareness of just who is in our prisons, um, and the fact that our prisons really have become the repositories for every other system that fails. So we see overwhelmingly people who have been raised in, with, uh, in poverty, without economic supports. We see overwhelming people with mental health issues, often disabling mental health issues. Historically, we've also seen people with intellectual and cognitive um, issues in terms of challenges, whether it's anything from learning disabilities to actual intellectual disabilities. We've also seen, uh, and as we're having this discussion, that increasingly it's those who are racialized. And right now, um, women, uh, when we talk about the women who are serving sentences of two years or more, for instance, in this country, 
half of them, one in two are indigenous, one in 10 are black, and the numbers are about one in three for men and, um, and one in about 10 as well for, um, for men when we talk about black prisoners. So that's a huge, huge mass incarceration, not just overrepresentation. Back in 1990s, when the numbers were about 13%, so indigenous people were about one in 10, it was described as a crisis in this country. What do you call it when you've got one in two? And so that's the reality. And then when we look at provinces and territories like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and the north, the numbers go up way higher. It's three and four, and for young people, it's nine and ten and ten and ten. And so those are horrific numbers, and I think that has made people become more aware of the fact that this isn't just people who are posing a risk to society in the ways that we, or, you know, B-grade movie-type depictions of people mm -hmm. who are in prison. It's actually people who have been provided with fewest opportunities to actually thrive in our country. These are, it's really important that everybody is aware of these, this gross disproportionality and, and ask the question, which I know doesn't have a simple answer, is, you know, how did this happen? Um, you know, I, I know that we have to go way back and we have to look at, at what's happening every day as well. And particularly when we look at provincial uh, institutions and we, you know, we find that 80% of the people have yet to be convicted of a crime, people being held there. So there's something seriously wrong here. Now, recently you introduced a bill that would let judges modify a prisoner's sentence in cases where there has been misconduct by prison officials. Can you tell us about this and, and how that would work? Sure. So the bill actually is uh, the amendments the Senate made back in 2019 to another bill, a government bill, and it was mm -hmm. the bill to eliminate the use of segregation. And what it really did was replace segregation with a term called structured intervention units and remove virtually all of the legal uh, supports and the, the checks and balances, if you will. And so, so I... Uh, uh, Senator Jose Foreni Singh, as she then was, uh, she sadly uh, died during the COVID pandemic. She and I and a number of other senators had worked on those amendments. And when, uh, when they passed the Senate, that was great, but the government then rejected them. And so uh, when they didn't pass, she said, we have to go into the prisons and start monitoring what's happening. And so we did. A number of us have about 34 um, senators, 36 senators now, have been going into the prisons and monitoring what's happening since then. And what became very clear is that the amendments we had made could have made a difference, in particular to have judicial oversight and have the courts be able to look at these issues. And one of those was the remedy that you've talked about, that where the way that corrections treats prisoners amounts to correctional interference with the lawful sanction, then people should be able to go back to court and have those sentences revisited. It's not an original idea. Louise Arbour recommended it in 1996, following the Commission of Inquiry into the uh, issues, the strip searching, illegal strip searching and segregation of women at the Prison for Women. Uh, but what she proposed is that it's the only way really to correct corrections when they don't follow the law because when a judge sentences someone to prison 
they presume that the person is going to be separated from the community as the punishment or the penalty for their conviction. They don't presume they're going to go there and be forever punished or mistreated. And so when we see things like lengthy use of lengthy segregation, transfers, uh, forced mental health treatment in the sense of particularly injections and, and that sort of thing, when we see uses of force, when we see the types of, uh, you know, um, mistreatment that has been happening, that has been chronicled in inquests, inquiries, investigations over the years, uh, that those should give rise to some kind of remedy. And up until now, the only remedies that really exist are judicial review through the federal court system, uh, or in terms of court remedies, or uh, civil suits. And certainly there have been a number of civil lawsuits uh, challenging the use of segregation, uh, the placement of people with mental health issues in isolation as well, those sorts of things. And what, what um, Madam Justice uh, Louise Arbour recommended was instead of just leaving people to try and figure out if they can afford a lawyer, if they can get access to a lawyer. There should be an expectation that the law is followed. And as she described it, bring the last portion of the criminal legal system, I don't call it a justice system because there's sadly not much just about it for too many people, uh, that it should bring the corrections under the courts in the same way that police are and police accountability exists, um, that judges themselves have to, you know, can be appealed if their decisions don't uh, follow the law. And so really that was, that's what the remedy is. That's what's been proposed. It's in a bill called Bill S-230. It's a private bill that I introduced uh, when uh, Senator Fareini Singh uh, died. Uh, she was going to introduce it. And so it's one that's proceeding. It's currently at the Senate Legal Committee. Uh, and we'll be going to clause by clause next week, which means if it passes that, it will go back to the Senate for third reading and then over to the House of Commons to uh, hopefully be passed there. Well, let's let's hope. Now, in, in this scenario, would a judge who uh, sentenced someone then remain seized of the case even after they've been sentenced or would it go through a different process? Well, the particulars of how it could happen could vary, but certainly I think the benefit of the judge being seized of it who sentenced, and unless for some reason either they have retired or they no longer, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, are on the bench than somebody else on that court. But it would go back to the same uh, jurisdiction where, at the very least, where the person was convicted and sentenced and have the, uh, the case revisited there with all of the evidence being provided about what has happened and allowed allowing then uh, that to be examined and a determination made. Obviously won't be, this is not going to result in, in masses and masses and masses of cases. It would be as Michael Jackson has identified, you know, someone who's been doing this work for more than 50 years, uh, that these would be cases like the sorts that result in things like the Commission of Inquiry, significant investigations, ones that, for instance, the correctional investigator might bring to the attention uh, of uh, different individuals, including the courts. And, and do you think this would happen more quickly than, for example, a human rights complaint or s some other area in which we know that the administration uh, wheels turn very slowly? 
Um, my hope would be that it would be much like an appeal. It would happen in that kind of uh, framework, time frame, because the other thing, the problem with a human rights complaint, and those are great, and there's been, as we know from um, the work that we did back in the early 2000s, uh, and that resulted in a report called Protecting Their Rights. The Human Rights Commission has done some great work on these issues. The challenge is, um, as we've seen with the the challenges Cindy Blackstock has had having the First Nations Caring Society, uh, the rulings from the Human Rights Tribunal implemented, is it doesn't mean automatically that that is now a new decision. And so uh, the idea of going back to the court would be the court would be seized of this, would then be able to uh, make a decision to either shorten a sentence, end a sentence, or change the parole eligibility period. And if if that were were to happen, do you think that it would put um, the the prison administration on notice that they they would be more careful, shall we say, or or more attentive to the mistreatment issues that are are current and have been for a long time? I would certainly hope so. When I started doing this work, we often said that you, in order to determine what rules existed within a prison, you had to determine what the warden said the law was or the policy was. And, you know, I don't say that flippantly. That was really, no. it was the administration who determined uh, what happened or didn't happen and how it happened in a prison often. When the Corrections and Conditional Release Act was introduced, part of the reason it was introduced is to try and bring corrections law in um, to, to make it comply with the Charter, the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and human rights uh, provisions. And so it was characterized as a piece of human rights legislation. And one of the objectives was to reduce the use of incarceration. Well, we know what's happened. The opposite is true as the numbers have gone up and exponentially so. And so uh, this is really to try and uh, bring home the idea that the law must be applied. And Louise Arbour said back in, in the mid-90s that when she looked at the situation that was happening with the Correctional Service of Canada then, not just at the prison for women where the commission of where the events took place, but when she looked at the policy, because part of her inquiry had a whole uh, policy component, she said that it was very clear that in corrections, rules were there were rules everywhere, but it, nowhere was the rule of law. And that's really what this is uh, trying to do is, and I, I agree with you, I think that if this passes, then there will be a requirement that correctional staff at every level should know what the law is. Because right now, I can't tell you how many times I will be walking around a prison with either senators or staff or whoever, and when they talk about a policy, and if I say, uh, you know that violates the law, that that's inconsistent with the corrections legislation. I'll say, oh, no, no, that is the law. And I'll say, no, that's a policy that you have implemented, and it actually mm -hmm. violates the law. So if it's challenged, you know, it would have to be changed. And the problem is the if it's challenged is the concern, and that's, that's part of why we're looking at these kinds of provisions, both a judicial oversight component of segregation or isolation by whatever name, not, not just structured intervention units, but also then a remedy where the law has been broken. So it, it, if, if it were passed, and I think I, I join you in hoping that it, it will be, it will not only benefit the individual who has suffered mistreatment, but it could also work to make a more transparent and accountable correction system in Canada. 
Is, is, is that your view as well? Uh, yes, and that's very much one of the primary goals. One, one of the challenges right now, I mean, Emma Cunliffe, a professor of law at UBC, has has written um, in a couple of years ago in the Supreme Court Law Review about the fact that for m decades, um, the if you received a, a, a statement from a police officer or a correctional officer against that, that was contrary to something you heard from an accused or a prisoner, almost always that the police officer and the correctional officer's position was privileged. It was seen as they were the truthful ones, mm -hmm. not the prisoner. And I think, again, many court cases have shown, uh, particularly over the last couple of decades, that in fact that isn't true. And she actually has recommended to judges that where they have the only documentation is from a, a correctional or a policing authority, because they are the ones that create the documents and they control who has access to them, there should always be a questioning, an interrogation of those records. Uh, and one of the few ways to do that is if a matter is before the court. And right now, one of the challenges um, people have all the time is, you know, getting their files, even even though they're entitled by law to their files, getting yeah. access to them can be incredibly difficult. This is one way that by putting it in front of the court, it will also be accessible to not only them and their lawyers, but also the public. And as we see, well, this I mean, is there's a very important stuff. And I'm awfully sorry to tell you that we have run out of time, but I have a feeling I'm going to be coming back to ask you for for updates. Um, you know, as somebody once said, you, you can't be the umpire of your own ball game. And I think that that this w bill would go a long way to to assisting with that, that problem. Thank you so very much for joining us today, Senator Pate. Oh, just call me Kim, please. And thank you, Danielle, for doing this and for all of you for the work you do. Thank you. That Absolutely was my, tremendous. Thank you. That was my special guest, Senator Kim Pate, talking to us about the bill she's recently introduced to improve the conditions of people who are incarcerated in Canada's prisons. Danielle, Senator, appreciate it so much. What a conversation. Folks, we step aside here for a couple of moments. Remember, we uh, can be joined for Know Your Rights every Monday here on the program at the same time. Up next, though, we will wrap up our show, tell you what's coming up tomorrow, see what the gang over at now at Dave Brown, we'll peek in their window, see what they've got for us, and our closing moments. So think about games, how much we always think we're a part of one, or there's a child that really was. We'll talk about it in a moment. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Hi, I'm Ramya Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.